Nine. Before we look at God's word, let us pray. Holy Spirit, we ask, we bid you to grant us the grace to illumine the truth and the verses for which we will look at this morning. Help us, Lord, indeed, to see Christ. Help us to see his glorious work, your redeeming love, your everlasting salvific work, guaranteed, fulfilled in your Son, ordained in eternity past. Lord, although some truths, as easy as they are to understand, are difficult for us to digest. So we ask that you would grant us the ability to see, acknowledge understanding, and to receive what it is you have declared through your word. For this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, We've been studying through Romans for a year now. Romans uh, makes clear that we are all sinners and that the only way to be rescued from the very condition for which we are born with is faith through Jesus Christ alone who was displayed publicly as the propitiation of God's wrath by way of his blood. Propitiation, again, it means satisfaction. That is, the wrath of God was satisfied and is only satisfied by way of the shed blood of his holy, innocent, one and only begotten Son. Romans chapter 3, verse 23, says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Now, in Romans 8, Paul has dealt with the great security of those who are indeed in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And as the chapter concludes, there is therefore then no separation ever for those who are in Christ. Concluding that nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Those who have been foreknown, the scripture said, Christ died for. He justified them. They are indeed safe and secure, for if God, if God Almighty is in covenant relationship with man, nothing can sever that relationship. Amen? So the obvious question then would be, Paul, Paul, brother, what about the Jews? What about the ancient people of God, Paul? They were in covenant relationship with God. They reject Christ, and they don't believe Is God a covenant breaker, Paul? Paul answers that question beginning in verse 6. Now, 
we're working our way through Scripture, as is our practice here, beloved, in case you don't know that by now. And we are in the early part of Romans 9. Now, just saying Romans 9 to some people, even pastors I know, horrifies them. So they pick and choose the highlighted, well-received portions of Romans, and they skim or skip altogether over Romans chapter 9 and sometimes 10 and 11 as well. This is the Word of God, beloved. We are not ashamed of the Word of God. We are not afraid to proclaim the Word of God. And that is why we must go through it verse by verse, which, in which the text today reveals for us with clarity divine election. Divine election. With that said, please stand as I read God's Word. Romans chapter 9. This morning we will look at verses 6 through 16. And the Word of God reads, verse 6, But it is not as though the Word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are children of Abraham, because they are his offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have, pro- I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up. And we'll, we'll finish there because we won't get there. So we will try to get through verse 16. This is God's word to God's people. You may be seated. Dear friends, the doctrine of election is usually met with two kinds of reactions. Some are very upset and angry at it. Others are very delighted and comforted by it, and rarely is anyone ever neutral about it. (laughs) That's how clear it is. A.W. Pink, the great A.W. Pink, once began a sermon by saying, and I quote, I am going to speak tonight on one of the most hated doctrines in the Bible, that is, the doctrine of election. And he was right. Because it is. Probably because some refuse to be taught or reason from the scripture. And because when they hear about it, they begin to think of all kinds of other things that don't necessarily go along with it. You know, they, they might think perhaps of a hyper-Calvinistic, quesera, whatever will be, will be attitude. That is not the attitude we shall have. Amen? And let me preface what we're about to to learn here this morning with this. In this church, in this body, 
having been graced to, to be immersed in the scripture for these last five, six years, whatever it is, and you have come to understand and embrace these glorious truths because they're taught in the Bible, may, not, may that not ever elevate us in pride. May they, that not ever cause us to ridicule others who have not yet come to be able to see and embrace this glorious truth. Amen? We've had that kind of nonsense here before. We will not have it again. Amen? You can only understand truth because of grace. And we receive it and we walk in it with humility. Amen? All right. So, in case you're new here, or in case you're visiting with us, let me make clear, our desire here is not to necessarily promote a particular system of theology as important as systematic theology is. Okay? It's very important. My only name, aim, and our only desire is to be biblical. Having said that, we stand under the word of God. We proclaim the whole counsel of God. My entire Christian life has been a matter of adjusting my theology to the Bible and not the Bible to my theology. This is what we must do. Now, some people don't like that, and therefore they'll accuse you of having your own theology, and they're more comfortable with adopting a theological structure. Some people get bowed up and all upset about certain topics or issues, be they theological, philosophical, or even today, political, and then they attempt to adjust what the Bible says to their personal view, as askew as it may be. They expend all kinds of effort to erect a structure that fits their outline. We don't want to impose philosophy or tradition or theology into Scripture. We want theology to be under Scripture. That is, we want theology to come out of the Scripture. Amen? I want to make that clear for anyone who's new here. So, in everything that we do, this has been and will be our standard, not a particular theological structure, not this confession and that confession, um, which are good, like confessions, historical confessions are very good. And if you want some good historical insight, I'd encourage you to read those. Read that tradition. Read history. But as I said last week, when, when, when you were met by Christ at Heaven's Gate, he is not going to bring up whether or not you've read through the Westminster Confession of Faith or the London Baptist Confession of Faith or whether or not you've read Calvin's Institutes or not. He's not going to bring that up. The confessions are beautiful. They are the labor of great men of God throughout history. They're not inerrant. They're not divinely inspired, but they are incredibly helpful. I'd encourage you to read all of those things. Read the Institutes. Read the Westminster Confession. Read the London Baptist Confession. But this is the Word of God. So... I am not coming at this text from some theological vantage point. We're coming to the text from the text. That's my point. That's my point. 
So when we talk about divine election, when we talk about predestination and their significance to the Christian faith, it's not because the reformers, it's not because of, rather, the reformers who recaptured their importance as thankful as we are to them. Okay? It's always been here. The reason predestination and election are important is because they're clearly taught in the Bible. That is to say, this is not some merely reformed perspective. So when you leave here, if you're visiting, you want to say, boy, that's really a reformed view. No, this is a biblical view. (laughs) This is a biblical view of the text. Predestination simply means that God ordains all things that come to pass, summed up in texts like Romans 11.36. You you can look at your um, bulletin. Look at the front of your bulletin. Let's read it together. For from him... And through him and to him are, to him be glory forever. Amen. You know what all things means? All things. Everything. Now, the book of Romans, let's not forget, is an epistle to believers in Rome made up of Jews and Gentiles. It is a didactic epistle. That is, it's an informative instruction to the Christian church, an educational letter to the church. Its author, the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul thoroughly believed in God's sovereignty, and yet at the same time, he worked very hard for the conversion of Gentiles. He believed in the sovereignty of God and worked very hard for the conversion of Jews, his ethnic people. And Paul opens this section with a heart of compassion. He exposes his heart of grief. He says he has great sorrow in his heart, knowing that the vast majority of Israel has not identified and embraced Jesus of Nazareth as Messiah. He's grieved over that. He doesn't wash over that. That is not a que-sera attitude, amen? And we looked at that specifically last time. Notice, as a matter of fact, he talks about this very privileged people, that is, ethnic Israel. They are Israelites, verse 4. To them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who's God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, he was grieved because the vast majority rejected Christ. And now he's going to go on to explain why people reject Christ. These are people who shared all, they all shared the same privilege. Some believed, some didn't. Now, when you, when you look out upon the landscape of humanity, you see and meet all kinds of people, privileged people, underprivileged people, People from all kinds of backgrounds. Some are very intelligent, very worldly wise, very talented, very charming. You know any charming unbelievers? (laughs) I sure do. Incredibly charming, very intelligent, who care not for the gospel. I know some incredibly talented, gifted, creative people who have some very strange views about God. 
Some have never, never said under the preaching of the true gospel, and perhaps they've never been privileged to hear the gospel. There are those who, who own but have never read in a thought-provoking manner the living scriptures. It sits on their shelf and it collects dust. Others around the world who have heard the gospel embrace the gospel while at the same time, in the same audience, there's those who reject it either with indifference or with aggression. Why? Some people who hear it for the first time embrace it and they trust and love the Lord Jesus Christ with all their heart the rest of their life. Others who've heard the gospel over and over and over and over and over again, am I irritating you yet? And over again, (laughs) dismiss it or outright reject it. Even in Bible-believing churches where, where, where God is actually preached faithfully and his word is preached faithfully, the whole counsel of God, where God's people rejoice together like you do, where you edify and encourage one another in the truth to live out the Christian faith. Sit right alongside others, hopefully no one in this church, but throughout churches, there's those who believe who sit right alongside those who simply go through the motions. They bear no marks in their life that they've ever tasted the saving grace of God in Jesus Christ. This is a privileged position. This is a privileged situation, not unlike that of ethnic Israel for which Paul is grieved over. Why? Why do some and not the others? Why do some who have all the same opportunities and advantages in hearing the gospel proclaimed reject it while others embrace it with love and in confidence? And let me assure you that the answer is much deeper than a mere outward rejection. Are you ready? (laughs) Now, after Paul's words of verses 1 through 5, he speculates that someone will inevitably say, well, Paul, I guess God's word and his promises have failed, haven't they? Notice verse 6. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. Quite simply, he goes on to say, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. That is an explosive statement. That would be considered so unpolitically correct today. Politically incorrect is the verbiage. Politically incorrect. He's saying, all he is saying is what he said back in chapter 2. Not all Jews, as ethnically pure as they may be, are true Jews. Genetically, yes. By association, yes. But according to faith that saves, no. Verse 28, chapter 2. For no one is a Jew who's merely one out, outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. Now, Paul says this very same thing in three different ways right here in chapter 9. Verse 6, not all Israel is Israel. Notice verse 7. And 
not all children of Abraham, not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But, and now he cites Genesis 21, 12, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Now, Abraham had two sons, right? He had, Abra- he had uh, Isaac, and he had, was the other one? Ishmael. Ishmael was a son of the flesh. Ishmael was illegitimately born. He was not of God's chosen people. Isaac was. So Paul says here in one sense, look, we already know something of who Abraham's true children are as he addresses this church. We already know something of this. God's people, plain and simply, were promised to come through the line of Isaac. It's clear. So, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Children of promise. Whose promise? God's promise. It's God's promise. So Paul makes it, beloved, emphatically clear that God was already making it clear back in Genesis, and that is this, that he's doing a work over here that he's not doing over there. Why is that? Because he's God. This is Sunday School 101 answer, because he's God. (laughs) He's God. He's the sovereign. Paul is building his case that divine election is an inescapable fact of human history. The children of Ishmael weren't given the same promises as Isaac. Now, some people, Paul knows, will raise up and they will say, that's not fair. He couldn't help that he was born. He couldn't help that, that Abraham slept with Sarah's maidservant and he was born and now he's not given the promise. That's not fair. Question. Friends, who deserves to be saved? <laughs> no one. What's fair to a just and holy God? Just punishment. That's what's fair. We're thankful God's not fair. If you're saved, you're thankful he's not fair because if he were fair as a holy, righteous God, we would be in hell. That's fair. What person, what nation, what people is God obligated to save? Is God obligated to do anything? No, he's not obligated to save anybody. God, according to his own pleasure and purpose, chose through Abraham and Isaac. Now, even that line wasn't without exception with regard to eternal individual redemption. Remember when Jesus confronted the Pharisees? Now the scripture says they came and confronted him, but really they were being confronted by him. This is a divine appointment, right? In John chapter 8, this is the religious elite. In John eight thirty seven, Jesus says, I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Oh, I know that. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. Verse 39, they answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if if you were Abraham's children, you would be doing what Abraham did. Verse 42, if God were your father, you'd love me. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil. And your will is to do your father's desire. Why? 
because their will was subject to their condition, as we will see, and is therefore subject to their spiritual father, who's the devil. They weren't believers. They were offspring of Abraham. They weren't from the line of Ishmael. But they weren't sons of Abraham. They weren't in Christ. Again, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. This is crucial. This is important because we must know that the kingdom of God is not inherited by physical descent. By physical descent. This is a reminder of church membership. How many grew up in church? Grew up going to church. I grew up going to church. I grew up hearing the truth. I was in sound churches too. This is a reminder that church membership doesn't save any more than being Jewish saved. Amen. A person could be part of the visible faith community as were those of Israel and yet never experience the saving work of God the Holy Spirit. Never truly having a heart transformed by God for God. How does one become born again? Only by the supernatural work of God, the Holy Spirit. I'm amazed that authors come out with books on how to be born again. You can't make yourself born again. That's the supernatural work of God. Jesus said to Nicodemus, unless a man be born again from above, literally from above, he cannot see the kingdom. It is the sole work of God, the Holy Spirit. An individual can sit in church Lord's Day after Lord's Day and never embrace the promises or the warnings of God's word. But Paul makes it clear. It's not the promises of God that have failed. Never. God's promises are fulfilled in those whose hearts have been transformed by God for the glory of God. And again... It's not what we get from our parents that guarantees our place in the family. Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit, spirit. Not all Israel belong to Israel. Not all people who grow up into the church will be in heaven unless they've been born again to be part of the church. Paul continues, verse 9. For this is what the promise said. Now he's citing Genesis 18.10. About this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. This is a barren woman. An old woman, far beyond the years of being able to have children. Having never been able to have children. She will have a son. Who promised? God did. Verse 10, notice this now. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac. We'll stop right there a moment. Now, notice here, the line is getting smaller, isn't it? It's getting smaller. It comes through Abraham, because God said so, by way of Sarah, because God said so, through Isaac and his wife Rebekah, because God said so, not Ishmael. Now, At this point, someone will say, Paul knows, someone will say, well, yes, that makes sense, Paul. 
precisely because Ishmael wasn't a true son of Abraham and Sarah. We get this. Because, you know, after all, we are of Abraham's line by way of Sarah. So we, we can dig on this, Paul. Right? Is Ishmael illegitimate. He naturally had no rights compared to Isaac. We accept this, Paul. So notice what Paul does next. He makes it very narrow now. Paul moves to show now that God made another distinction. This time between brothers of the same mother, the same father, conceived at the same time. Twins. Verse 11. Though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that, next two words, God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob have I loved, but Esau I hated. And there he's citing Malachi chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. Now, as we move through this, let me back up. As I said last week, I'll say it again. This text, this part of the Bible, Romans 9, 10, 11, it is not hard to understand. When you read it at face value, it's very easy to understand. The problem is, for us finite, sinful human beings, it's very hard to digest. Amen? It's not hard to understand. It's hard to accept. By the grace of God, May we move beyond human reasoning and accept what God has ordained. <laughs> that's the goal. That's the hope. That's the prayer. Now, Jacob was not the firstborn. He was secondborn. Esau, you remember Esau? He was an outdoorsman of a ruddy complexion, like yours truly. David was of a ruddy complexion. See? Man's man, so to speak. Jacob was a wily, crafty, devious mama's boy. That's what he was. Esau was favored by his father. Jacob was favored by his mother. Esau was born first. God said, the firstborn will serve the secondborn. Why? Because I said so. It's through Jacob that the promises would come, not Esau, for the sake, verse 11, of God's purposes of election. Before either one of them ever took a breath of air, not because of any works that they had done, not because of anything they didn't do, but quite simply because of his call. We're saved not by works, but by grace through faith. Do we believe that? Mark read from Romans chapter, uh, Ephesians 2 this morning for just that reason. Do we believe that we are saved solely by grace alone? That we're not saved by works. It's always been that way. See, the fact that we're here this morning as believers in Christ is all because of God's grace, and that is it. That is it. You don't add to it. Which one of us can say, I'm a Christian because I, I, I surveyed the religious scene. And I've reasoned within myself that Jesus is the most credible candidate as Lord and Savior. 
He said he's the only way. Yeah, I accept it. And you know what? With a little bit of his help, I believe. That's how we are. It's all grace or it's not. Can anyone who's dead in their trespasses and sins repent and believe? According to Ephesians 2 also. No, what can a dead person do? Absolutely nothing. But, but Ephesians 2, God made us alive together with Christ. That's what it is to be born again. One day you didn't believe. One day you were transformed and enabled to believe. That's salvation. It's enablement from God above. If it's not, then you can boast. You can boast if it's part God and part you. Then you do indeed have something to boast about. And go ahead and do so if it is part you, part God. What does verse 11 mean here? God chose Jacob. Not Esau, the older will serve the younger. That's the exact opposite of Jewish law, by the way. The younger always served the older. Who received the majority of the inheritance? The eldest son. Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, that word hated, you've all heard this. Oh, it means love less. Look. Look, You can go look it up. It means anything from love less to totally detest. See, that chafes us, doesn't it? It's simply another way of saying that Esau was not the object of God's electing purpose. That is, he was not the object of God's saving, that is, salvific love. Jacob was. Some people argue, this all has to do with nations. This has to do with two individuals who became nations. And people from throughout the whole world. I believe the Bible is very clear, beloved, that it shows us that God has a general benevolent love for all those who are created in his image. And what are the only creatures created in the image of God? Human beings. So he has a general benevolent love for all of mankind. But... The Bible also shows us that he has a specific, peculiar love for those that are in his son, right? Behold, 1 John 3, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Is that a different love? Yes, that's why we rejoice. I love you. I love your children. As they run around here, I love your children. But I do not love your children like I love my children. I love you. I love men in this church. I love ladies in this church. But man, you wouldn't want me loving your wife like I love my wife. Right? Therefore, Jesus said, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. There's a distinction between the church and the world. It's a different love. It's an electing, salvific love. Jacob was under the electing, saving love of God. Esau was not. Okay, now Paul's very wise. Paul knows, he realizes, that someone will respond at this point, God is unfair. God is unjust. So he answers the objection in verse 14. Well, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Answer, 
By no means. Paul realizes at this point that someone will ask, what about human free will, Paul? To which he answers, verse 15, he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, or so then, it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. This absolute truth absolutely chafes against our finite, fallen, prideful humanists. Can I just get an amen? It does. Why? Because we're fallen. Why? Because we can't understand the secret, divine, sovereign will of God. He's infinite. We're finite. We'll always be finite. We're eternal beings. We'll live with him forever, but we'll always be learning of him forever because he's infinite. We'll never be infinite. He's the only infinite one. Therefore, we'll always be learning. You'll get to heaven, you'll go, well, of course it's election. <laughs> it could be no other way. Glory to you, almighty God, even though I didn't understand it for all those years I was a Christian. Glory to you. Glory, glory, glory that you called me in eternity past to be saved. Thank you, Jesus. That's all you'll say. You will not on that day say, what about this divine election and you hate Nisam? You will not say that. <laughs> See, it rubs against us the fact that salvation is not ultimately based on some manner of human effort, but entirely upon God's merciful will. That's why we would never pray, Lord, I hope you appreciate me accepting you as my Savior. Because if we play part in it, you could pray that. Right? But instead, what do we pray? Sovereign, mighty God, thank you that you sent your son to save me. Thank you, you chose me in eternity past. That in due time, at one particular moment, I would believe the gospel. And that Christ's blood covers me. That's how we pray. If we had anything at all to do with our salvation, we could boast like this. Some people at this point say, well, okay, well, I guess we just don't have a free will. We're just a bunch of robots. Let me ensure you, we all have a will. Okay? We all have a will. You can turn left. You can turn right when you leave here today. You can go eat where you want. You could punch me on the face on the way out if you will to do so. And hopefully I'll be able to block it. I mean, you have the will to do those things, but let's think about this. The will of man is only as free as the man himself. Some people think free will is the little man inside the man that can do what the man doesn't do. The man, the little man, the will is subject to the man. The will of woman is subject to the woman. Would you go to a mentally insane person, clinically insane, and say, look, let me reason with you, pal. Let's reason and try to, uh, let, let me try to get to your will. If you can will just not to be insane, you'll be fine. Would you do that? No. His will is subject to his mentality. His mind needs to be healed, which will change the will. His will is in bondage to the state or the condition of his mind. Paul has already covered this in chapter 8 in case we missed it. Go back to chapter 8. Look at verse 
5. Those who live according to the flesh set their what? Their minds on the things of the flesh. By the way, this is not a Christian jumping back from being in the flesh to being in the spirit. This has to do with two categories of people. The unsaved, those in the flesh, and the saved, those in the spirit. Two categories. There's only two. Notice. Those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is what towards God? Hostile, for it does not submit to God's law. It what? Cannot. It cannot. Unless one has the spirit, we cannot submit to God. That is the will being transformed. That's what it is. So Paul makes that clear. He's made it clear. Those who have or will be born again from above were those and are those who were chosen in eternity past. Now, this is a very educational type of sermon, so and hopefully for your benefit, so you can stay with me for, for the remainder of the time. Amen? Christians don't necessarily argue whether or not God chooses some people. Okay? Just one reading of the Bible makes that very clear. God chose Abraham. Any question about that? And what, 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 what was Abraham's family associated with? Idols. God chose Moses. He was a murderer. God chose the apostle Paul. He was a murderer. God chose David. He was a shepherd boy to be king. I've never met a Christian who doesn't agree that God sovereignly chose Israel as his elect. Out of all the nations of the world, God says, I chose you. They never question that. What many Christians argue over is why or how he chooses one and not the other in salvation. Fair enough to say? Some, some therefore, want to rearrange doctrine. And they'll say, well, he looks down the... The, the annals of time, and he, he looks and he sees who's going to choose him. So based on that decision, he therefore chooses them. He foreknows. Foreknow doesn't mean that. Foreknow means to set your love upon. Like Adam knew Eve and they had a child. He foreknew you. He set his love upon you. Others say, you know what? Here it is. Let me sum it up like this. God votes for you. The devil votes against you. You cast the deciding vote. You heard that? That sounds cute, but that is the worst possible theology on which to ever build your faith. Okay? In biblical election, God does it all. The devil is not even a registered voter, and that's very important to understand. <laughs> he does not cast a vote. He can't because the election was accomplished when? Before creation, Ephesians 1, verse 4, before the foundation of the earth. He's a created being. He didn't exist when God determined to save you. Some Christians go as far as to argue, well, this is Pauline doctrine. This isn't Jesus' doctrine. How about that? Well, how about John 6.44 and John 6.65? Jesus said, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. John 6, 65, no one can come to me unless it's granted to him by the Father. Now, Jesus illustrates this clearly in John 10. And if you would, turn to John 10. We'll take a look at it together. 
In John 10, beginning in verse 14, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the what? The sheep, not the goats. When Jesus comes, he's going to separate the sheep from the goats. He laid his life down for the sheep. No, Notice, verse 16. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Context, the fold of Israel, meaning Gentiles. And I must bring them also. And they, what? I, he doesn't say, I hope they'll listen. He says, they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Okay? Now, jump down to verse 26. But you... These Jews, religious elite of the day, you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Now I want you to notice here. Verse 26. Does hearing and believing make you a sheep? Or do you hear and believe because you're a sheep? Notice, Jesus said, you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. That's why. My sheep hear my voice. In other words, you do not hear because you're not of mine. If you were one of my sheep, you would believe in those who are my sheep, even those not of this fold yet, will, verse 16, listen. Why? Because they're mine. That's why. Now, there are many who would like verse 26 to say, you're not a sheep because you're not willing to believe. It doesn't say that. You're not a sheep. You do not believe because you're not mine. That's why. If you believe, rejoice. You're his sheep. Why did you, become, why did you come to believe when you did? Because you're his sheep. Jesus provided us the great uh, parable of the lost sheep. The shepherd leaves the 99 to go after the one what? Lost sheep. He didn't go after a goat to make it a sheep. He went after a sheep because it was lost. I wasn't a lost goat that decided to believe and become a sheep. I was a lost sheep that he found in due time. Having rejected the gospel over and over and over again. And all of a sudden, I just one day believed? It's not because I'm intelligent. I am really the fool. I am really the fool used by God to confound the wise. I am the foolishness of this world that he's transformed. It's his grace. If you walked into an orphanage, you walked in and you said, I'm going to adopt two children. And you adopt them. You give them your love. You give them your affection. They become part of your inheritance. Would anybody say to you, man, are you ever mean and ruthless because you didn't adopt four, eight, or ten? Would they say that? Or would they rejoice because you adopted two? Oh, we'd be thrilled. We'd be thrilled because you adopted two. But you let God do the very same thing, choose some and not choose others, It's as though he's obligated to do what we think he ought to do. You know, I was a Sunday school teacher of little kids 
for years as I served um, as a deacon. So I was always looking for illustrations because children need visuals, you know, either by way of story or, or I, I did felts a lot and that type of thing. I'd make them come alive. I'd, bring, I'd carry my Bible and bring the felts out of the Bible so that they could see I'm teaching from here. So in researching once, I came across a Sunday school teacher who wanted to illustrate the doctrine of election. So he had seven children in his Sunday school class. And one day he brings out an envelope out of his pocket. And he opens it up and he pulls out a dollar bill. He goes, whose is this? He said, that's yours. He says, let me ask you a question, kids. If I wanted to, could I give it to any one of you I decided to give it to? Yes. <laughs> yes, you could. Well, whose is it? Well, it's, it's yours. So he goes on and he gives it to one of the kids. The kid said, thank you. He pulled out another envelope. He said, what about this one? Whose is it? It's yours. Can I give it to whomever I want? Yes, you can. Yes, you may. So he gives two other children an envelope with a dollar in it. So now three out of the seven have a dollar. So he asks the other four, how do you feel about it now? Well, I don't know. It sounds a little fishy to me. <laughs> so the three who had the dollar cried out and said, hey, man, you just said he could give it to whomever he wanted. It's his. He can do with it as he pleases. So he, he breaks out and gives six kids total an envelope with a dollar in it. And they all rejoice. They all say, thank you. So now six out of the seven have the same thing. He said to the seventh kid, how does that make you feel? Well, that's not fair. I was cheated. So he goes on and explains a little more about sovereign election. And then later on, in the after the illustration, he breaks out another envelope. He gives it to the seventh kid. And he goes, how does that make you feel? Great. So he opens it up, and there's a $5 bill in it. What do you think the other six did? <laughs> it's not fair. That's exactly what some Christians do with divine election. Rather than seeing God's elective purposes as loving and gracious, they see election as something ruthless. You don't want to see it that way. The great Harry Ironside, great Bible preacher and illustrator, uh, was teaching on divine election, and he illustrated by a personal story and... He loved to play with his grandson, and in his home, Ironside had this uh, big bear rug. It still had the head and the teeth attached. You ever seen those? So when his grandson would come over, he'd throw it up over his shoulders and put the head up here, and he would chase his grandson around. <laughs> he'd say, I'm a big bad bear, and I'm going to get you, and when I get you, I'm going to eat you. And his grandson loved this. <laughs> so one day his grandson comes over, Dad, Grandpa, can we play? Can we play? Big bad bear. So he puts the head up over his head of the bear and running around the house and he chases him into a bedroom and the grandson's pinned down in the corner. He says, I'm a big bad bear. I'm going to get you. I'm going to eat you. And his grandson springs up and wraps his arms around the bear head and he says, you're not a big bad bear. You're my grandpa. And you love me. And you would never hurt me. And he went on to say, that's the way 
that we ought to treat election. Throw yourself into its teeth, bow down and acknowledge and make it your blessed hope. For without it, you would never be saved. Amen. By the way, election is not the gospel. The gospel's the gospel. We don't preach election. We're called to preach the gospel. But in preaching the gospel, if it were not for election, no one would be saved. Nobody. So as a saved person, as you read the living word of God, begin to see yourself as having been selected by God, his love, his affection, before you could ever say a word or breathe a breath. He determined to save you. And in due time, he did save you when you heard the gospel, either preached by your mama, your daddy, a friend, a preacher, or all of the above together, planted, watered. He brings forth the harvest. You didn't. He does. And he did it because he chose you in eternity past to be his own. A sheep. That's grace. The gospel says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. So let's say you sit here today and you're a visitor and you're an unbeliever and you say, well, I guess I'm just not elect. And I guess if I'm not elect, I won't believe. I say this, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. There's power in that statement. It's emphatic. The only way to be saved, believe. Believe in what? Believe about Jesus? No. Believe in Jesus? Nope. Believe Jesus. That he's the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through him. That he lived the perfect life in your place. That he died in your place. He raised in your place. He ascended in bodily form. And he will come again for those that are his sheep. Leaving the goats. You must believe. It means you must trust yourself fully and completely, to the finished work and worth of Christ. Election only reveals that God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the earth. Once you're saved, then you go, oh, he chose to save me, Ephesians 1, 4, before he created anything, and then you rejoice. And then that encourages you to know that as, though, as, as he saved you in eternity past, nothing will snatch you out of his hand in the future. So divine election is what makes the gospel work. Amen? It makes the gospel work. So who's God's true Israel? And I close. Ephesians 6 says this, For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new what? A new creation. That's what it is to be born again. Let me contemporize that statement. It is neither baptism that counts for anything, or the Lord's Supper that accounts for anything, but a new creation. In other words, baptism in water doesn't save you. Taking the Lord's Supper doesn't save you. You must be born again. And then when you're baptized and you partake of the Lord's Supper, it points to Christ and all that he's done on your behalf. Those are signs that point to something greater than themselves. Notice, and as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them and upon the Israel of God. That word and can also mean even or that is. So read it like this. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, that is the Israel of God. 
You're the Israel of God, of the seed of Abraham. We opened up with service, opened the service with that. You're in Abraham because you're in Christ. Being in Christ, you're of the seed of Abraham, the true Israel of God. So we preach the gospel, beloved, because of divine election, for through it, God's true Israel shall be saved, whether they're Jew, ethnically, or Gentile, making up the true Israel of God. Because Jesus is true Israel. How do you know a true Israelite? They're in Christ. The true Israel. Amen? So understanding God's sovereignty, beloved, demonstrates his grace. And if salvation is all of grace, then I do not have a pebble of foundation for which to stand or base my pride upon. It's all grace. Grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Amen. And amen. And let's pray. Our glorious and mighty God, what can we say but thank you? What can we say but glory alone goes to your name? Our high and almighty, holy, righteous God, who condescended to send your son in the likeness of human flesh to live a life we could never live, to uphold the law we could never uphold, and then to make payment that we could never make. And through the gospel proclamation, we came to believe at a time, and I pray for any who are not in faith in Christ today, that you would, Holy Spirit, move to cause them to believe. And that we can trust and know that, wow, you chose us before you created anything else. And knowing that and now believing, nothing will snatch us out of your hand. May this build an assurance and a security within those in Christ today and a call of the gospel to those who are not, that you would save them and enfold them into the flock, your flock, sheep, saved by grace, by the great shepherd, our Savior, Jesus Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.